You are listening to the Sermon Audio Podcast from Heights Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas. For more information about our church, you can find us at heightschurch.org. All right, I bet you have never seen somebody bring luggage up on stage before, am I right? That's right. All right, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me, Ephesians chapter 4, and while you're finding it, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I don't know how many of you are aware of Sherlock Holmes and his good friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, but I'm a big fan myself, and I will say that Sherlock Holmes and Watson went on a camping trip, and while they were on this camping trip... They had their nice uh, burgers that they cooked on the grill. They roasted some hot dogs, and then they busted out the s'mores, right? So after they had had their fill of camp food, which is the best food in the universe, I promise you, they decided, kind of tired, I think I'm going to lay down and go to sleep. So while they were sleeping, Sherlock wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's kind of startled and sees all the stars out. And so he reaches over and wakes his colleague up. And he says, Watson, wake up. What do you see? And Watson says, I see millions of stars. It's beautiful. He's like, well, what does it tell you? And so he responds like this. And I, I have it right here on my notes on my phone. He says, well, astronomically... It tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Pretty good answer. Thanks a little bit longer. And he says, astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Okay. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. All right. Theologically, I can see that God, in all likelihood, is incredibly powerful. And that we are quite small and insignificant in comparison. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. (sighs) Sherlock sighs and says, Watson, you've done it again. You've overthought yourself. Somebody stole our tent. I think sometimes the Christian life can kind of be like that. We can make these, these very smart-sounding observations. We can, we can come to a point where we can understand deep truths about who God is, the way that God operates. We might be able, if we've been in church very long at all, we might be able to quote the Ten Commandments. We may be able to quote the books of the New Testament. We may be able to figure out what God's plan for our life ought to be. We may be able to uh, come to an understanding that we should be reading and praying. But sometimes we miss the point. We miss the actual action that is supposed to come out of the Christian life. We miss the point of what's going on. When you look at the, the, the book of, Eph- uh, of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and 
it's got a lot of these characteristics. The city, the city of Ephesus was known for its pagan worship. If you look up the, the seven ancient uh, wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis is one of them. It was huge. They were intellects. They were Greeks. They were scholars. They were philosophers. They would have been able to answer any question that you threw out. They would be able to come up with some answer that you would end up nodding your head and saying, wow, cool. I haven't thought about it that way before. But in all reality, when Paul was writing to the church that was in Ephesus, he had a different understanding of what these people were like. I'm going to read with us in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, that they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So I got to thinking about this a little bit. And I got to thinking about airplanes. I got to thinking about what I pack in my luggage when I'm going to go somewhere. Right? And I know that, uh, that everybody's a little bit different on what they like to take in a, in a carry-on bag. Right. Um, But I've got some really good stories about things I've tried to get onto airplanes. I'm just saying. So um, I kid you not, there was a time when I was younger before 9-11. Right. Where in my activity bag, because my parents were cool like that, we had activity bags. I carried on a metal cap gun. Yeah, it was awesome. It had caps on it and everything. Right. It was like so. Yeah, I firearm on a plane, right? So later I went on a mission trip to Boston and got through an airport with a pocket knife. And when I got to the second airport, they said, do you have anything in your bag? And I said, a computer, some gum, my clothes. And they're like, what is this? Uh, that's a pocket knife. But my favorite my favorite was a couple of years ago, I was going to a men's ministry. I don't know if I'm legally allowed to share this. So scrub this from the record, right? Let it not be on the internet or anything like I uh, going to a men's retreat in Atlanta, Georgia was going with some of the men of our church. Pastor was there. And uh, I had just gone to uh, the shooting range with my good friend, Keith Rhodes, over there. And his cousin put bullets in my backpack. (laughs) So bullets to a gun that wasn't mine, bullets that were not mine, in my backpack, 
It was awesome. So, they did not think it was awesome. Never take bullets to an airport. It's a bad life choice, I'm telling you right now. But I got to thinking about it, and if I were going to pack my bags for for a place where I could go and, say, speak for somebody... And I didn't really prepare that much for it. And so I threw in my backpack, uh, or I threw in my carry-on, like this right here, some shorts, some flip-flops, a t-shirt, and a ball cap. For those of you that are really comfortable with me and know me quite well, you know that that's probably what I'm the most comfortable in. It's what I wear to do yard work. I do yard work when I'm happy. So when I'm speaking in front of people, it's natural that I should wear basketball shorts, a t-shirt, a ball cap, and flip-flops. But I will have you know that Pastor Lee Peoples and Pastor Matt Hogan do not like when men wear flip-flops. <laughs> so I made a better life choice, and I didn't wear that this morning. And if I did, there would be many of you that would be puzzled. And you would say, man, that youth guy must not really like his job. <laughs> and you would, you would begin to, to think like, hey, is this the last time we're ever going to see that young man in front of us? <laughs> you would at least have to question uh, what I was thinking when I got out of bed that morning. And you would think, Shouldn't he have worn something more appropriate to get through? Now, I'm going to make a case this morning that many of us walk through our Christian life that way. What's the most comfortable? What's the most natural? What's the way that gets us through feeling the best? Paul takes some shots at that, and we're going to jump into that in just a minute, right? When you look at this in Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, there are words that talk about culture. And I think a lot of them describe our culture quite well. He says words like deceived, calloused, darkened. And I love it. When I'm teaching students, I can't help but point it out. In my, in my church, oh, Bless her. There was this, this lady in our church, and, and I know that there are some amazing men and women in our church that remind me so much of this lady. But growing up, a lady that mentored my mom, her name was Miss Chick. Miss Chick was a nurse in World War II, and she has gone home to be with Jesus. But she mentored my mom, and when she was mentoring my mom, she said, never overlook the butts in the Bible. And because I'm a youth pastor, I can say things like that on the stage, right? But when you're looking at Ephesians 4, he's talking about the darkness of the world and the culture, people looking like the culture, and then there's a turn that takes place in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. It's a way of him saying, you're not intended to look like the culture anymore. Something different needs to take place. Something needs to resonate in you that's different. And I love the word learned. Because as somebody that's married to a teacher and teaches students. When I hear the word learned, I think this isn't natural. 
You don't bring a five-year-old that's learning basic math and give them an algebra problem and say, go. Unless they're a beautiful mind, right? You don't. You, you teach them structure, piece by piece by piece. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in this letter. He's reminding the church what it looks like to be walking with God. So going back to planes, I couldn't help myself, Sonny. You know what I'm talking about. A family of four got on a plane over at Hobby. And they were going to be flying to Boston, Massachusetts. So I don't know if you knew this, but those those planes, it's kind of a long ride. It's not a super common flight, so it got pretty crowded on the plane. So family of four, husband, wife, and two young kids get on to a packed plane, but they were towards the end getting on, and they had to cram on a single row. On one side, there was a kid that was crying, and on the other side, there was a hefty gentleman that had already fallen asleep. He was snoring before the plane even took off. So they sat between these, these people... And it was real uncomfortable. So noticing the flight attendant comes up and noticing their discomfort says, "Uh, excuse me, sir, talking to the husband. We had some businessmen that their meeting went long. They're not going to be able to make this flight. But they had first class tickets and we've got four first class tickets remaining. Would you like to, for free, move your family up to first class? So he thought about it for all of a millisecond and said, absolutely, we sure would. So they get into first class, and believe me, youth pastor, I've never flown first class. I'm sure it's nice. But they had seats that reclined all the way back, not like that 80-degree thing that everybody in the back gets. And they did not bring them uh, peanuts and little snacks. They had a meal with it. And... They had all the room in the world, and they were all spacious, and it was such an amazing flight. It was comfortable. Oh, my goodness, it was comfortable. And then as they begin their descent, the captain comes on the overcom, and he says, I hope that you really enjoyed your flight to Seattle. We'll be landing in approximately five minutes. And the family says, Seattle? thought we were going to Boston. My friends, have you ever wondered if in luxury you're going in the wrong direction? In the comfort of everything that you have with your family, with the people that you pour into in life, with your life group? Now, I've got nothing against a life of luxury, but what I do see is that Paul is calling people away from normalcy into something different, into something more. I want you all to continue reading. I'm really glad that the Apostle Paul doesn't end right there. It's kind of vague. You're like, okay, walk like Jesus. Got it. Learn Christ. Got it. 
but he doesn't go on for very much detail in that passage. And so originally I was like, okay, I'm going to stop right there. I could just drive that point home, be more like Jesus, and everybody leaves and says, Jonathan taught about how we should be more like Jesus. Got it. But Paul goes on, and there's a second word. That's a big catch word. The first one is but. That's not the way you learn Christ. And the second one is therefore. He's saying, because that's not the way you learned Christ, that's not the way you're supposed to be. He says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness in 24. And then he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So church, what does it look like for us to have a life that's packed and pointed in the right direction. What kind of things are we putting on and taking off on a regular basis when it comes to our faith with Jesus? What is real to us as believers? Is this something we actually stand on and believe? So here's what I think. If you're asking your question, just like that family probably should have, how do we know if we are heading in the wrong direction? I think Paul does a really good job at painting it out for us. When he's talking about the things that we're supposed to put on, the things that we're supposed to take off, here's some of the things that I believe that he talks about. The body of Christ is supposed to put on truth over deceit. We're supposed to be unified with one another. How can we be unified with one another if we don't trust one another? How can we trust one another if we don't speak truth to one another? Truth is important for who we are in Christ. Second thing. This one's hard. Put on righteous anger over malice. Now, I'm going to let you know that this is one that I had to study on. It was a head-scratcher. And I have several pastors that I have a ton of respect for, and they disagreed with each other on this. So I'm going to give you two opinions on what this is, right? One of them said that it's saying when you have anger, quench it quickly. Because sin can creep in. 
he makes the case that anger is something that naturally happens and we can't really control if we have anger or not, but we can control what we do with that anger. So that was option number one, pastor that I have a lot of love and respect for. Number two, this is probably the camp that I'm leaning in. The guy's name is Sam Storms. He writes for the Gospel Coalition. And Sam Storms said it kind of a, a little bit differently. He said that righteous anger that this passage is talking about is the right to be angry at the things that God is angry at. Now, I know that you're thinking that anger is sin. Well, that's not really scriptural. God teaches that he was angry at multiple things. He's angry when we have sinful lives. So maybe we should be angry at the sin that we have in our lives, the sin that we have in our church. But it's followed with a warning. Don't let it lead to sin. And he goes on to explain what that looks like a little bit more, talking about malice, letting it stew, letting it just sit in you, and then it comes out. I've had lots of encounter with people in the years that I've been doing ministry. And sometimes really good instruction really good observation of what's going on in my life can be delivered with such hostility that it's really hard to be received. Whether it's directing at me or a family or a staff member. Even if it's right and good, sometimes we let it set and it just broods. But there's more. He says that in Christ, right, the church is supposed to be encouragement over slander, gossip, tearing down. We don't struggle with this on this church, so I'm going to move on, right? That wasn't supposed to be a joke. Guys, I think everybody, to a certain extent, deals with this one. Put off slander, pick up encouragement. You know how difficult it is to be encouraging to someone? It's not difficult at all. That guy that bothers you with everything they post on social media? And so you just, you get on there and you're like, wow, you're mature. Well, guess what you just did? Guys, maybe instead we could encourage one another rather than tear people down. Now, I love the, the conversation right here that he has about the thief, right? I'm going to go back and, and read that again for us because it made a big impact as I was prepping for this, right? He says, uh, let me find it right here. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to build up for himself, to have a nicer car, a nicer house. Let him be hardworking so that he can have the luxuries of life. It's not what it says, is it? 
No, it says the opposite. It's saying, hey, the thief doesn't have to steal anymore. He's going to be hardworking, but he's not hardworking so he doesn't have to steal anymore. He's hardworking so that he can start giving generously to people in need. You see, church, this is the way that the church is supposed to operate. I'm never going to forget it. When I first got here, I had very little money. This church voted me in when I was 22 years old. Thank you, by the way. I was driving a car that's tires were so bald. Every time I would hit a bump, I would pray that they wouldn't blow out because I didn't have money to replace it. And there was a man in this church that one Sunday looked at my tires, wrote down on a paper, go see this guy and tell him I sent you. He'll give you a good deal. So I went to the guy and I said, so-and-so sent me. And he's like, there will be no charge. These tires have already been paid for. Are you kidding me? Guys, a generous church helping people as they have need. What better picture of the gospel can you get? But there's more. He doesn't stop right there. He says, walk in the spirit. Rather than grieving the spirit. The way that I think of it is like this. Grieving is to make sad. We're making sad the spirit when we make little of the sin that's in our life goes back to what I was saying earlier. Are we comfortable going in the wrong direction? Are we comfortable regularly just falling to the same obstacles? Do we make little of God? Instead, walk in the Spirit, looking more like Christ, And then the last one, I know that this is a special verse for many of you in this church. But he talks about having forgiveness because that's the way that Christ forgave. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does forgiveness have to do with anything? Guys, authentic and genuine forgiveness is at the very foundation of what we believe in Christ. It's at the very core of who we are. How can we claim to be a part of a family of a God that looks on sinners and forgives them if we're unable to do the same to people in the church? I don't think we would have to convince anybody in this room that the world is broken. It's a mess. Relationships are a mess. My goodness. We try to fix it. 
education, more money, government, less government, more government. Everything we try to do, medication, it's temporary, it's fleeting. The world is broken. We try to fix it in all these different ways, but that was not God's original design. God had a design for you and I to walk in unity with one another, to have perfect relationship with each other and with God. But you know the story, because of our sin, the world was broken. It's right there in Genesis chapter 3. But thankfully, we have a God who is forgiving. And one of the authors that I was reading this week as I was preparing for this, he said that authentic and genuine forgiveness is at the point that the one that was wronged pursues restoration. The one that was wronged pursues restoration. So, my friends, we sinned against God. We sinned against His kingdom. We committed treason against a holy God, and He had a plan to pursue redemption, to make it right. So he sent Christ to die on our behalf, to live a life we couldn't live, to die a death that he didn't deserve for your sake and for mine. The Bible says if we repent, that literally means to turn and go another direction, to go in the correct direction. If we repent and believe that Christ came and that he died and on the third day he rose again, And we could begin that process. He begins that process of restoration in us. He begins the process of making us new. And the next step is when you get to the letters that Paul writes. What does it look like to recover and pursue that relationship with God? He's already found us. He's already saved us. He's already given us grace. But am I really being made new? Do I pass the test? If I'm looking at what's in my luggage this morning, am I finding more of the things I should be taking off or more of the things I should be putting on? Am I overcome with anger and malice? Or instead, am I angry at my sin? Guys, if you're honest with yourself this morning, every person in this room is able to find application in this passage out of Ephesians. How could I do a better job at walking in Christ? Maybe some of you are coming to the realization that you're heading in the wrong direction, in luxury. What would it look like for you to repent, turn around, and go in the right direction? 
Thank you for listening to the Sermon Audio Podcast from Heights Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas. On Sunday mornings, we have life groups for all ages at 9 a.m., followed by worship service at 10.30 a.m. For more information about how to support the ministry of Heights Baptist Church, go to heightschurch.org slash give.